be in Isaiah tonight, chapter by chapter through the Bible. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Anyone need a Bible? Not only hearing the Word of God, but seeing it. Over the halfway mark in the Bible, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that we can just be in your word and pressing through, Lord. And Father, we know none of these books in the Bible is here by a mistake. Certainly not here, Lord, for to be ignored by us, Lord. And just as we've been learning in the book of Acts on Sunday morning, Lord, we know that you do not want us to ignore any part of the Bible, but we're supposed to really absorb the whole counsel, the whole counsel of your word, Father. And we pray that you help us this evening. In your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Isaiah, just an amazing, amazing book of the Bible. The introduction was actually a few weeks ago where we did uh, chapter one. We're in chapter two this evening. But Isaiah, prophet, he prophesied in at least four, but really most believe five different kings in Israel over about a 50-year time period. Uh, just a, uh, an amazing book. There is so much about Jesus Christ in this book. Remember Jesus Christ, I know I repeat this often, but after he was resurrected on the road to Emmaus, appeared to two disciples who did not recognize him, gave a Bible study through the Old Testament, opened up the Word, and uh, taught them where from the word uh, he, he was, where he was uh, in the Old Testament, and no doubt spent a lot of time in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah repeatedly quoted by Jesus himself. It uh, was wonderfully quoted uh, you know, by uh, Philip when he was, uh, or actually he, the, the Ethiopian uh, eunuch who was on his way back to Ethiopia read Isaiah 53 out loud and said, wow, I wish I had someone to explain this uh, to me. It turns out Philip overheard him, was right there. And uh, there is uh, in the book of Isaiah just a prophecy about Jesus' anointing, prophecy about his birth, prophecy about his suffering, his death, and his return. We'll read some of that uh, this evening. He appears to be the most educated of the prophets. 2,200 different words used by Isaiah. He appears to have been a member of ki the king's court, Hezekiah's court. And um, he just is just so rich in language. So rich in language is um, Isaiah. But let's, let's once again... Uh, begin here, verse 1 of chapter 2. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw 
concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, what did we say about this last time? He saw. He saw. Now, we know there's a picture of the cross in Isaiah 52 and 53. Did he see a picture of Jesus Christ being crucified? I don't know. But it does say this is what he saw concerning uh, the vision that he saw concerning uh, Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, Chapter 1 starts the same way. Now, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, when you see the term the latter days in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, it, it is speaking of the days just prior to or right after the return of Christ. Speaking of the Armageddon, a lot of the events in, in Revelation concern the latter days. Now, one of the things that is can be a little confusing, a little complicated about going through the prophets, and this is the first prophet that we've we've been in, and so there's a principle of, of biblical interpretation. Oftentimes, the prophets will, within the same chapter, go from the future to the present, sometimes to the past in the same chapter. Sometimes, certain prophecies have to do with the present and the future at the same time. People have described it like this, um, uh, that, 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 that there's sometimes you see a light, and it looks like one light. But as, you know, there may be an airplane behind an airplane and it it looks like one light and only when they get closer are there two lights. So Isaiah deals not only with the first coming of Jesus, but the second coming of Jesus. But also sometimes the prophecies deal with something happening in that day as well as the future. Now, right here, so you'll see it bounce back literally from verse to verse. Sometimes he'll go from the future uh, to the present. Now, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of, the, of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many peoples. There they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Now, in Zechariah chapter 14, it says that when Jesus returns at the very end of this seven-year tribulation period, when he returns... He will stand on the Mount of Olives facing Jerusalem and the Mount will split in two. It will split in two and a large valley will be created. Some think that one effect of this is that Jerusalem will actually rise up 
Hence, in verse 2, it says that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. So uh, some, some think that that's what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 16 the time of Armageddon, the same kind of event I just talked to about in Zechariah chapter 14, there's a reference to the city of Jerusalem being in thirds, and that perhaps one-third of it, because of Jesus splitting the Mount of Olives, uh, splitting it in two, what a third of Jerusalem will rise will actually rise, and that may be what he's referencing here. But in verse 2, it's talking about some future prophetic event that has not happened. It's the year 2011. has not happened at some point in the future. In the latter days, verse 2 says, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And then again, it says in verse 3, Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. We sing a song like this, don't we? Greg, you've got to sing this song sometime. And, he, and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Anyone know where this, these exact few verses are repeated? That's trivia. Man, I'm going to be impressed if someone gets this. Bible trivia. Micah. That's very good. Alex, chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Uh, Alex wins the double jeopardy. Uh, but exact same three verses are repeated. Isaiah and Micah are prophesying at the exact same time. Shouldn't bother you in the slightest that they're repeated here. And, you know, no, many times prophets are prophesying the exact same thing at the same time. It says in verse 3, he will teach us his way. So I don't know about you. I've always been jealous of those two guys on the road to Emmaus who Jesus gave that Bible study to. I mean, can you believe, could you just imagine being a fly on one of their shoulders listening to Jesus take them through the Old Testament? Well, there will be a time where we will be there. He will teach us his ways. Who's that? Verse 3. That's talking about Jesus. He will teach us in his ways. He will teach us his ways. Now, you know, many times, you know, I hear people say, I've said said it myself, you know, it's not fair. Why couldn't we have been there when Jesus was there? Why couldn't we have seen the miracles? Wouldn't we'd have like an advantage, right? If we actually saw him raise a lame man and start walking or raise someone from the dead, then all those people had an advantage. Right? That's wrong. It was an advantage. What does it say in John chapter 6 after they had seen all his miracles? All of them except, all of them except 12 departed. So apparently it wasn't any advantage at all. Nonetheless, what a blessing just to be there listening to the Lord teach. And this will be a part of uh, what's called the millennial reign, where Jesus comes at the seven, uh, end of the seven-year period uh, at a time where we, you know, we, we don't know when, when that's going to begin. But uh, he's going to come and return. Jesus promised uh, that he would return. 
and um, he will actually be teaching Bible studies then. And Jerusalem sounds maybe a little strange to us, but it will be the capital, really, of the whole world. Verse 2 again. Now it shall come to the pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all people shall flow to it. Referring to uh, Jerusalem. In verse 3 where it says, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from where? Jerusalem. Remember in in Acts chapter 1, what did the disciples say? Uh, Asked Jesus right before he was taken up to heaven. They ask him in Acts chapter 1. Come on, it wasn't so long ago we were in Acts chapter 1. They said, well, so when will be the time where you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Verse 6, Acts chapter 1. And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it wasn't then, but they had entered into an age where Jesus was sending them out to the ends of the earth. And, but there will be a time where Jesus establishes his kingdom. He promised uh, that he would do so. And it says that this kingdom is going to last a thousand years, after which time there will be uh, a new heavens and a new earth will be established. But in verse 4, it says that Jesus actually will be the ruler of the earth who will rule the earth. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. Now, remember when John the Baptist, when he was first teaching, he thought that this is what Jesus was going to do. And most of the people uh, who were uh, virtually everyone in the Jewish community at the time, they didn't like reading the part in Isaiah and the other parts of the Old Testament about the suffering Messiah. They didn't want to hear that. They, they, just, they were being oppressed by Rome, and the, all those messianic prophecies as, about the Messiah coming and establishing his kingdom, that's the one they focused on. And so when John the Baptist was in prison, he began to get discouraged. That's why he sent disciples to Jesus. And he said, are you the one or are we supposed to wait for another? Because John the Baptist was hearing crazy things from Jesus' mouth. We're coming back to him like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers? What's up with that? I thought the Messiah is coming and and, and establishing his rule. He will establish uh, his rule when he returns. Psalm 2 also gets into this. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. What is a plowshare? It's like a pl- something you plow with. So there's not going to be war anymore. There's not going to be need for uh, swords and spears. And there's spears and a pruning hook. What's a pruning hook? It's used to prune trees, to tend to gardens. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither Shall they learn war any more? So Raytheon will go out of business. I know they're a Massachusetts corporation, but um, sorry. 
no human, be human being will be lifting up their sword against other anymore. You know, wars plagued us since Cain. Took only one generation after Adam and Eve sinned for uh, essentially war to, to enter in. It's been plaguing us uh, ever since. So at this time, it says, Nations shall not lift up sword against one another, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so Iranian Christians, Israeli Christians, Palestinian Christians, American Christians standing together, worshiping the, uh, worshiping the Lord. Now, ironically, this, at the end of verse 4, this phrase, neither shall they learn war anymore. Anywhere, anyone know where that is, where that's etched into? Trivia? Very close, Supreme Court, United Nations. That's right. It's up there on their wall and in, in the front of the, of the building. You know, the promise, w you know, and, and you don't want to mock that. Praise the Lord for good intentions and blessed are, it's true, blessed are the peacemakers. But, you know, men yearn for peace, but they will not acknowledge the hopelessness of their own efforts to achieve it. Only Jesus can achieve peace. Only Jesus can, uh, can uh, achieve peace. And the irony is, is that though we should be peacemakers ourselves always, don't misunderstand that. That's utterly biblical for Christians to be peacemakers. The Bible does say, until the return of Christ, there always will be war. In fact, in the book of Joel, not Joel Spencer, Joel the prophet that verse in verse 4 there is actually reversed. And it's speaking of the battle of Armageddon, the, the great battle right before the time Jesus comes back. It says, well, you will beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. It's actually reversed. There's going to be one last huge war. So we long for the day when there's no more need for a military budget. It is tragic that we're spending billions and billions of dollars on military equipment. But unfortunately, we're only going to be safe when Jesus himself is reigning among us. And so, in verse 5, he comes back to the present. So, this is very typical. Got to understand this, folks. When you're going through the prophets, they will go right back bounce right from the future to the present to, uh, to uh, 2,000 years in the future to 4,000 years in the future, whatever. Uh, it, sometimes, it, and, and they're bouncing sometimes from verse to verse. They go right to the present. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So at this particular time, they are in great rebellion. And he's He's warning them about the great and mighty day of the Lord that, you know, God is storing up wrath. So, Israel, just walk in the light of the Lord, he's telling them. Walk in the light. You know, John chapter 1 says, Jesus, the light, came into the world where there was darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend him. 
said, I am the light of the world. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then he says in verse 6, For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. And they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Now, Moses had told Israel, had told the kings of Israel, don't multiply horses, don't multiply chariots. Why? Because man has a tendency to trust in them instead of the Lord over time. And he's just saying, look at you're trusting in everything but God. The land is filled with wealth. Verse 7 says it's filled with silver and gold and there's no end to their treasure. You know, you look over the United States of America and it's just, I get the same feeling sometimes. You just look, wow, there's just no end to all this wealth. Verse 8, their land is also filled with idols and they worship the work of their own hand. And we do that, the, the, the very, very same thing in, in this country, whether it's buildings or cars or houses or swimming pools or whatever, worshiping the work of our own hands. That which their own fingers have made. Verse 9, people bow down and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them, he says. So there was a time that Israel, when, like Psalm 20, verse 1 says, Some trust in chariots, others in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They had just turned it on its head. And now they're trusting in their horses, their chariots, the strength of their army, it says. And then verse 10, it says, Enter the, into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. Now he, he goes here to, some would say this is sort of has a double prophetic meaning, that this is referring to the immediate future. It's also referring to the very, very distant future during the time of the tribulation where God's pouring out his wrath on the earth. You see in Revelation. In Revelation, in Revelation 6, it says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Verse 10 says, enter into the rock, go there and hide from the terror of the Lord 
and the glory of his majesty. Now, it is also true, though, that in their more immediate future, there would be great judgment on Jerusalem and uh, in Israel there. Um, in verse 11, it says, The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be brought, bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. You know, it's just so sad that sometimes it really does take God's judgment for our pride and our haughtiness to, to disappear. It's sad, you know, that it took 9-11 for the churches in this country to start filling up. It, 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 it's sad, but it's often, you know, God withholds his, he's patient and he's, he stores up his wrath. He long suffers and, and his definition of long suffering is so different than our definition of long suffering often he waits generations and generations but the bible does say that the lord does not will not strive with man forever judgment will come verse 12 says for the day of the lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty upon everything lifted up so on on all pride and it shall be brought low upon all the cedars verse 13 of lebanon that are high and lifted up and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish, upon all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. It's amazing that... Uh, so often times in churches when people discuss sin and you hear preachers and pastors teach against sin. I know I said this a few weeks ago, but it bears worthy of repeating. So oftentimes sin is like the sin of alcohol abuse, drug addiction, sex or whatever. But it's pride that Jesus spoke to over and over and over again. And notice here, when it comes to the final tribulation where in Revelation where God, because this is speaking of what's going to happen in the book of Revelation here in Isaiah chapter 2. This is what this is speaking of. Notice what it's coming against. It's verse 17. It's the loftiness of man, the haughtiness of man. Where, where it says... It says, upon all the hills that are lifted up, just referring just to all the pride that, that man has. Verse 18, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. And again, verse 19, it's the same picture that we, we spoke of in Revelation. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake his earth mightily. In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made, each for himself to worship, to the moles and the bats. 
So in, in the day of wrath, money and wealth and the size of a 401k or a bank account or the size of a house or the, a car or a pool or whatever, none of it is going to make a difference. It's all going to be, you know, it, it, it says they're just going to throw it to the moles and the bats. It's, it's not going to be worth anything in the day of wrath. And, the, and he is calling on the people while prophesying about the distant future. He's calling on the people to repent. Verse 21, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Seven Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? And so oftentimes men, man, or this country, attaching themselves to a hero or a series of heroes or, or something, rather than the Lord, saying, sever yourself, sever yourself from man, cling to the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, For behold the Lord the Lord of hosts, that first Lord, which is not in all caps, is Adonai in the Hebrew, which means master. But the second one is all caps, which is Yahweh. For behold, Adonai, Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts. And in that reference to the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament and that God has many names in the Old Testament. He's called God our healer, God our peace, God our provider. Here he's called God or Jehovah, Lord our, uh, of the armies, the armies of the angels of the Lord. Of, that's what the hosts are. He takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. The mighty man and the man of war the judge and the prophet and the diviner of the elder. Now he's gone right from the future back to the present. I know this gets a little tricky and confusing, but he's back now in the present. Judah, uh, the nation of Israel had been established under uh, King Saul and the messianic line under, uh, under King David. And for uh, a few hundred years, uh, Kings ruled in Israel. At, uh, at, during that process, Israel was divided in two, Judah in the south and Benjamin in the south and the north, the ten other tribes. And um, the north was the first to be wiped out. They were wiped out by uh, the Assyrians. 150 years later, though, uh, the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And what happened when they came in to uh, Jerusalem? What did the ba Babylonians do? They took the mighty men back to Babylon. That's what they did, including Daniel, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So this is a prophecy here of what would happen. Verse 2, the mighty men and the man of war, the judge and the prophet. Uh, it says, and the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan and, and the expert enchanter, I will give children to, uh, to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. So um, they, all those people wound up being carted off to Babylon at, at a point in the future. And, and when it says in verse 4, I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them, uh, it's, it's really speaking here just of the 
incompetence, you know, of, of the leadership. And sometimes, you know, the way the Lord judges a nation is just to give them what their own desire is. And their own desire is just for leaders who really have, they're not shepherds. They're just people sort of in it for themselves to build their own uh, kingdom. Now, it is ironic that the worst king that really ever ruled in Judah was Manasseh, ruled for 50 years, and he was a child when he became a prince. Can you imagine? I think he was, what, eight years old? Can you imagine an eight-year-old taking over a, a country? Like, oh, no. You know, for the, our birthday party, we'll have uh, lollipops and we'll play uh, pin the tail on the donkey or whatever. But, um, uh, he, and he was just an awful uh, king. And what happened sometimes with these child rulers is that they were just, they became a magnet for wicked men to just come in and influence. And by the time they got up into age where they were adults, they were just, exceedingly wicked men. That was the case for Manasseh. Ruled for th- uh, he ruled for um, 50 years, and it just said that the, you know, blue, uh, Jerusalem just, be- just flowed with blood from the innocent blood that uh, Manasseh uh, shed. It says, verse 5, the people will be oppressed, everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent towards the elder, and the base towards the honorable. And, you know, these are, these are the, the, the types of, of things that happened, actually, uh, during Manasseh's reign. It is believed that Isaiah, the prophet himself, was killed by Manasseh, sawed in half by a wooden saw. Ouch. And notice how a nation in de- decline, uh, the children, it says, will be insolent, meaning rude and insensitive and insulting towards uh, their elders and they're just the behavior a nation in decline you see the children just really uh, going uh, downhill and we'll see a little later uh, the same a nation in decline that also the same thing can be said of the women uh, uh, happens as well that happened we'll see that later in the chapter but I heard about some survey of like I think there was 1960, the five greatest problems in school around America. Chewing gum, getting out of line, talking in class, not using the trash can, talking before raising your hand. The top five problems in schools across America. I think it was 1960. And you know, they did it recently. Rape, drugs, assault with a deadly weapon, larceny. A nation in, in decline. And, and Isaiah here prophesying of what was going to happen to Judah if they didn't, uh, uh, you know, if they didn't uh, turn from their ways, that, that they would be given children to be their princes. And he says in verse 6, when a man takes hold, also prophesying, this is more of their immediate future, when a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have clothing, you be a ruler. 
there'll be such an absence of courageous men and such an absence of good leaders. It's like, look, if if someone has clothes, go out and and just rule us. We need someone to uh, rule us and let these ruins be under your power. Verse 7, in that day he will protest saying, I cannot cure your ills. In other words, no one's even going to want to leave. For in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a rule of the people. In other words, I'm just tri- barely trying to survive. Don't make me king. There'll just be lawlessness in the land. Verse 8, for Jerusalem stumbled, Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord. And really, that's what the, it all comes down to. Is a nation and their conduct is is it for or is it against the lord verse 8 to provoke the eyes of his glory and we've come to a time where it seems the government is trying to make every kind of excuse to push god's glory aside and and turn our country into a secular nation Verse 9, the look of their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. So it says the look of their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. Now, what was the sin of Sodom? We're not supposed to talk about it. It's 2011. But it was homosexuality. Verse 10, say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Now, sort of in the middle of all this judgment here, you have this one verse, verse 10, which is an encouragement to the righteous. You know, in the Psalms, is it Psalm 37? You can yell out if I'm... If, if I get it wrong, but it, David says, do not fret because of evildoers. Do not fret because of evildoers. And Christians spend too much time fretting about how evil the world is. And, 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 and you know, we, we, we get a, bungled up in a bungalow or something. We talk about how evil the world is. And, oh, no, this is just terrible. Be encouraged. Say to the righteous, it shall be well with them. There is a place to thrive In the midst of all of this, Isaiah says, if you are still following the Lord and you shall eat the fruit of your doings, but woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them for the reward of his hand shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Now, you know, what's up with that? What's up with, is there wrong with a woman ruling over the people? Well, uh, no, Deborah was a judge in the Old Testament. Um, typically, you did have ma- male kings, but uh, these people had a couple of examples uh, fresh in their minds. Uh, one was Jezebel's daughter, who was a queen mother in Judah. She wiped out and slaughtered every single heir of the, uh, of the, to, the, to the throne. Seventy kids slaughtered them, killed them, not to mention Jezebel uh, herself. And he's saying, you know, you're going to get 
you're going to get the same kind of thing again uh, if you don't turn around, is, is, is what he's saying here. It says, oh, my people, in the middle of verse 12, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your past. So be careful of your leaders. Those who lead you cause you to err. Just be careful who you allow yourself to be led by. Verse 13, the Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyards, the plunder of the poor in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord of hosts? Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. And so it's, it's talking here in verse 16 that, you know, sort of women in, in, in a nation of decline, they lose all sense of morality. And, and you know, with men, it goes without saying, right? You know, the men are always uh, like that in the area of sort of being sexual predators. That's the scourge, the sin of, of man. But Isaiah is saying here, look, when it starts happening with your women, you're in big trouble. And look, I usually don't dwell on, you know, this type of stuff. You guys know me that I, I, I'm, you know, not, don't usually dwell on this stuff. But, you know, you see some of the stuff out there, that, that whole color jelly bracelet thing. You guys know about that probably. Where the women, you know, the girls in high school go around with, you know, if you have a, a blue uh, bracelet, it means that, you know, if, if a guy can take it from you, uh, the blue uh, uh, bracelet may, means you'd offer him oral sex. Black was, you know, regular sex. Red, a lap dance. Purple, a kiss a person of either sex. You know, glitter purple, a French kiss. And it just goes on and on. A clear bracelet was you're willing to do anything the snapper wants. And the snapper means, you know, so the guys would, you know, go up and snap um, the little colored jelly bracelet or whatever you call them off of them. And it was like a coupon. You turn it in to redeem it. And this is what our nation has come to. You know, high school is having to sort of outlaw these things. And, you know, mom's dad, mom, mom's here and dad's, you know, pray and take care of your daughters. This stuff is real uh, and it's out there. And, you know, how awesome it is when our kids, our daughters can be in the marketplace and taking a stand for righteousness. Taking a stand for righteousness. It used to be uh, the time where if someone, if a, a, a young lady in high school wasn't a virgin, like the whole school would know about it. Now, if a girl is a virgin, the whole school knows about it. But think about, in one sense, the opportunity that is just to shine for the Lord. Be a shining light for the Lord. 
You know, I think as some of the guys and the, the a couple of guys in the um, in the NBA. I mean, the NBA is almost synonymous for you know. You go around and those basketball players have a harem following around. And remember AC Green for the uh, LA Lakers. You know, he didn't wear a virginity sign when he went around town, but he was very public. I'm a virgin. It's like what? <laughs> you know, this guy making $3 million a year? What a great opportunity to shine for the Lord. Tim Tebow, who won the Heisman Trophy and and uh, a national championship, you know, and and all he talked about was Jesus. Whenever he got, got the, whenever he gets the opportunity, he just talks about the Lord. And one time there's this media, uh, um, the, the, this media, big media conference, and, 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 you know, they asked him, they said, so, um, are you a virgin? And he goes, yes, and I will be until I'm, I, I, I will be until I'm married. And there was this silence, and he goes, well, I was ready for that question. Apparently, you weren't ready for my answer. You know, they didn't know what to say. <laughs> so now he's a quarterback of the Broncos, and, and pray for him. Pray for that man. I, man, I don't know if you follow football, but... I just think he has the Lord's anointing on his life. And, and uh, the NFL, for, for whatever reason, seems to have uh, a large portion of men really, really serious about the Lord, which is a wonderful thing. The last four or five Heisman Trophy winners have mentioned the Lord and when they got uh, their, uh, their award. The Heisman Trophy is the trophy for the best college football player of the year. So, uh, but but uh, here... You know, Isaiah is describing a nation in serious, serious decline. And the scary part about it is they were seriously judged. They were wiped out. I do thank God for the remnant in our country of Christians who are are living for the Lord. But in verse 18, it says of these, verse 17, it says of these women, the Lord will strike uh, with a scab, the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. And that day, the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, the the, the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel, and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, and the robes. Wow, where were they spending their time? At the mall somewhere in Palestine, apparently. <laughs> They're spending a lot of time there. And, 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 and the Lord's just saying, I'm just going to take it all away. He says, I'm going to take it all away. First Peter chapter 3 says to, to, to ladies, let your adornment not be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of the Lord. Recently, my daughter Adley was reading, I think she was a little alarmed, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. She asked me about that verse. It says, in like manner also, the women adorn themselves. He's telling women how to how to carry themselves. Paul is telling Timothy, instructing Timothy, how women should be taught to carry themselves. It says, in like manner, 
that the women would adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, does this mean that, you know, you're not, women are not supposed to wear gold or pearls or, or clothing that looks nice? Well, you read the Bible in its context, and Proverbs 31 says that uh, the Proverbs 31 woman was dressed in fine women. I believe she wore scarlet and, and um, uh, clearly uh, she, she was dressed really well for her husband and, and she was a striking woman when it came to her beauty. But the point being, the point being as, as Peter said, is, 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 look, focus on the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. In Titus, it says that women of God are supposed to be discreet, uh, it says, and chaste. And it says in verse uh, 25, your men shall fall by your sword, your mighty men in valor, her gate shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate, shall sit on the ground. And, and this is pretty intense right here in verse 1, chapter 4. And in that day, seven women. So he's prophesying about the not-too-immediate future back then uh, where there was, there was going to be judgment and the Babylonians were going to come in. Verse 1. In that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying... We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name. So there, so many men will be killed in military battle. This is that seven women will be going, going up to one man just pleading, let me just take your name. I'll take care of myself. That's how it was. Serious, serious judgment. But then in verse 2, and this is how... <laughs> This is how the prophets are. They will just all of the sudden leap to the future and they'll have in the middle of this darkness this brilliant shining diamond. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Who's the branch of the Lord? It's Jesus Christ. Same image is repeated in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, meaning David's father Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Uh, in Jeremiah 33, verse 15, in those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. And one of the prophecies, I believe it's in Matthew, it's where it's called, he shall be called a Nazarene. Speaking of Jesus, the Nazarene, I think it's in the Hebrew, the root word is branch. He shall be called a Nazarene, a branch. He, where did he come from? Nazareth. 
I think that's one of the coolest prophecies. He shall be called a Nazarene. He was born in the area around and grew up in the area around uh, Nazareth. So speaking, just this brilliant time in the future where the people who would be, uh, the righteous rather, who would be living at the time of this great judgment could take heart at this future time where it says the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, but then it goes right back to the present or the immediate future. In verse 3 it says, And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a covering and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. So actually, I may stand corrected. This may also be referring to the temples established upon Jesus' return here. And in verse 4, referring to some of the judgment that takes place uh, uh, during the time of tribulation. Uh, And it's just speaking here that there will just be, uh, during the millennial reign, that just the presence of the Lord, not only with Jesus Christ himself, but kind of like when the Israelites were in the wilderness, some kind of presence there uh, in the temple or in Jerusalem on Mount Zion of, uh, of the Lord where there will be a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering. So, you know, real, real, real intense stuff. I, I don't know what to say. You know, we don't want to ignore it here. Twice in In chapter 20 of the book of Acts, Paul said what to the Ephesian elders? He said, verse 20, I kept nothing back from you that was helpful. In verse 27, he said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And and that's why we go through the whole counsel of God. You know, this is really serious business. And every time we gather for church, we, it's a time of, of joy with each other and rejoicing in the Lord, but we can never forget. You know, it's, it, it's serious business. Every time we open up the, the Word of God, heaven and hell, wrath and judgment, holiness, God is real. And we don't want to have this utterly lopsided, what's becoming an American view of God where it's all about mercy and there's no discussion of wrath. I mean, you know, you could probably count on on one hand practically, you know, the the amount of times in this country that a, a, a preacher of the word mentions the word wrath on a Sunday morning. I just saw this interview the other day with one of these natural, na- national preacher TV evangelism guys. And his whole theme is, look, I only discuss things that are uplifting to people. I want them to feel uplifted. 
And you know what the irony is, is that if we really have a true understanding of the wrath and judgment and holiness of God, that is uplifting. It's very uplifting. If in its proper context, it, 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 it really is. Because what kind of God would, would not care about justice? What kind of God is just going to let the world go on sort of in reckless abandon without any consequences. That's crazy. That's not uplifting. That's depressing. And so as you know, we go through the book of Isaiah, there will be many chapters in, in Isaiah where it's just really, really encouraging uh, stuff and things that just strengthened and, and uplift <laughs> Uh, but but uh, there are these these chapters about uh, about judgment and wrath. We need to take them very seriously, uh, and, and ulti- ultimately, I do believe it builds us up um, as we read the whole counsel of God, because we need it. We need the whole counsel of God. So, what we do on Sunday evenings um, for the last uh, few minutes is we actually end in prayer. We.